0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so we are trekking through Hebrews chapter 11, which is the Hall of Faith and just since we haven't been around the past couple weeks because of the snow day last week, um, let's just go back and look at the characters just in general. I'm not going to go back and reteach, but you know we've looked at Abel. He offered a better sacrifice than Cain. We looked at Enoch. He walked with God. He pleased God. We looked at Noah, a preacher of righteousness who built the ark. Um, then last time we looked at Abraham, and we looked at all the ways that Abraham demonstrated that active faith went where god told him and didn't know where he was going and sacrificed isaac on mount moriah and god showed up at the last minute with the ram in the thicket and so now we're going to shift gears and we're going to look at um basically the rest of the patriarchs isaac jacob and joseph so you know abraham had a son isaac isaac's son was jacob Jacob's son was Joseph. Now, there were a whole bunch of more stories there. But it's very interesting um, when you read Hebrews chapter 11 and, and the verses that we're going to look at. So let me just ask you for a moment. When you think back to the Old Testament stories, especially Genesis, what are the major points that you remember about Isaac? just, let's just What are some things about Isaac we remember? You're like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> He was Abraham's son. He was going to be, okay, so when he was a young boy, when he was sacrificed, okay. Do you guys remember the whole story of Jacob and Esau, tricking him out of the birthright and all that kind of stuff? Okay. Um, So there's those stories. Um, There's where Isaac and um, Rebecca meet at the well. There's, okay. All right, think about Jacob. What are some of the stories you remember about Jacob? There's a lot. Jacob tricking Esau, Jacob tricking Laban, Jacob tricking everyone, (laughs) Jacob on the run from Esau, wrestling with God. Um, What do you think about Joseph? What are some stories you think about Joseph? Sold into slavery, put in the well, Potiphar's wife, the famine, all that kind of stuff. There's some great stories about Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, but what's interesting is that none of those major events in their lives are focused on in Hebrews chapter 11. You'd think the writer of Hebrews would want to focus on those huge, momentous events in the life of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Come on in. But what he does is, here's the similarities we see between Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. In all of these verses, what the writer of Hebrews focuses upon is the moment of their deaths. It's their deathbed confessions, if you will. And what the writer of Hebrews is going to show us is what was on the minds of these patriarchs in their final moments of life before they faced death. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because all along we've been looking at, by faith these men did these great deeds. And then he gets to Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and he's going to focus on what they said or what they did right before they died. So the question we've got to ask is, what makes these deathbed confessions of faith so important? What do we truly find out about the faith? Remember, this is all by faith of these three men. So let's read Hebrews chapter 11. Let's start in verse 20. This is where we, we picked up. So we've already looked at Abraham. The last thing that was said about Abraham was um, he offered up Isaac, and God came and... in. And, 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 um, figuratively raised him from the dead so let's pick up in verse 20 by faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau by faith Jacob when dying blessed each of the sons of Joseph bowing in worship over the head of his staff by faith Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones That's all it says about these three men. All the great stories. Now think about Joseph. Now back when I preached through Genesis, that was my favorite part of Genesis was the Joseph story. And there's the whole last half of Joseph from Genesis chapter 40 all the way to the end. Actually probably even before that is all related to the story of Joseph. And, And we have like one statement about Isaac, one statement about Jacob, one statement about Joseph, and it's all about what they did right before they died. So, we have to dig deeper into what the writer of Hebrews is showing us. And as always, we're going to have to go back to the original stories. Okay? But here's what we... Let's first look at Isaac. What does it say? Verse 20. By faith, all it says there is Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Okay, what does that mean? He, he gave future blessings on his two sons, Jacob and Esau. Okay, Well, let me tell you what it means for Isaac. Authentic faith... Submits to God by understanding that his sovereign plan cannot be thwarted. Let's just stop right there. Can God's plan be thwarted? What does thwarted mean? Stopped, changed, stymied. Can we stop God's plan? We may think we can, and we may try, but ultimately, is God sovereign over all? Okay, okay. So, here's what living faith is, what we see in Isaac. True Authentic living faith lives under the absolute sovereignty of God, the living God, who does all that he pleases. You cannot frustrate the purposes of a sovereign God. So what does this have to do with Jacob and Esau and future blessings and all that kind of stuff? Well, we're going to talk about a difficult topic tonight. I waited a week with the weather so I wouldn't have to dive into this (laughs) difficult topic of Romans chapter 9, and the whole issue of how God chose Jacob over choosing Esau. Okay? So let's go back to Genesis chapter 25, and let's read this story and see what Isaac understood. Okay? So Isaac did something at the beginning of his life, and then at the end of his life he did something. And what we're focusing on in Hebrews is what he does at the end of his life. Okay? So Genesis, keep your finger in Hebrews. We'll come back when 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 we come back there. But Genesis 25... Verses 23 through 28. Genesis 25, 23 through 28. Whoops. Okay. All right. So, so this is the birth of of Esau and Jacob. This is Rebecca, um, starting in verse 23. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out like Elmo, red, all his body like a hairy cloak. Now, that's just my translation. Uh, the, The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau, not Elmo, Esau. After his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, we don't have time to talk about the dysfunctionality of this family from the very beginning, but you see from the very beginning there's favorites. Who does, who does Isaac love? He loves Esau because Esau's a hunter and he gets to, he male bonds with his, you know, gruff manly son. Jacob's a quiet man, you know, more of a quiet man, a shyster, a manipulator, <laughs> A con man, and his mother's just as good. I think he learned it from his mom, by the way. So, but here's the point, guys. Let's just talk about this. Who, who is the older brother? Even though they're twins, so let's just, let's just I'm going to draw a diagram. So those of you listening on the internet, when this is up on a podcast, you're not going to have the benefit of looking at this. You're just going to have to visualize it out there. In the, so there's one, let's just, let's just say one womb, okay? Who's the one womb? Who, who's the mom? Rebecca. Yeah. Okay, from Rebekah come what? Two from the same womb come Esau and come Jacob. Now, they're twins. Which one comes out first? Esau, okay. All right, so Esau comes out first. Who comes out second? Okay, but how is Jacob described? How does Jacob come out? He's grabbing Esau's heel. Now, Jacob, the name means heel grabber or deceiver okay so the only thing we know about Jacob on his birth is that man this guy is going to be a deceiver so when you look at the birth of these two boys if you were a Hebrew and just reading this for the very first time or hearing this for the very first time what would you automatically think God is going to choose Esau Jacob's going to be the one that's the bad guy He's the deceiver. He's the bad guy. The way things happened back in that culture was always the firstborn son got all the privileges. The firstborn son got all the privileges. He got the birthright, got the blessing. Everything was to go to the firstborn son. But what does God tell Rebecca before the boys are born, how it's going to work? The older is going to serve the younger. So what does God say to Rebecca? I'm in my sovereignty reversing the order now let me just ask you a question if this is God's sovereign decision to do so can Isaac and Rebekah manipulate it to change it they're going to try aren't they Okay. so here's the issue let's go to Romans 9 because Paul gives a commentary on this well it's on your screen or on your sheet Romans 9 10-12 Paul says and he's going back to this story Not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had not done anything either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might stand, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older shall serve the younger. I'm just going to stop real quick because you guys need to meet Joe and Judy. Thanks for coming tonight. Joe is our church planner in um, Fort Morgan, so for the Mission Church, so they were wanting to come to a Bible study tonight. So I said, "Come on, come on down, and hang out with us." So we're in Hebrews chapter eleven, verses. Uh, well, we're in, we're looking at Isaac, Jacob, and um, Joseph, their faith, and so we're we're kind of going back to Genesis and Genesis twenty five and looking at how. Jacob and Esau were born, and then what Paul says about it. So we're jumping into the deep end of the water, okay? So um, anyway, Romans 9 says that Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, and though they were not yet born and nothing either good or done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger. All right. You may not like what Paul has to say there about how things are going to work. But he says, these, before these boys are even born, it's determined who's going to be the one that's going to get the blessing. Who's going to be the chosen one? Jacob. Okay? Now, Paul clearly tells us here that God in his sovereign plan was doing something for Jacob that he wasn't doing for Esau. Now, we can get into the whole argument. I don't necessarily want to get into that argument tonight about election and predestination and all that type of stuff, Okay? Unless you guys want to, but I don't, you know, I've been on a plane today and I'm like not thinking about that. So, um, but I want to just talk about this in relation to Jacob and Esau. What was God's plan for them? God said the older's going to serve the younger. And that was God's sovereign plan. He told Rebecca before she was born. Paul even says here it was God's done deal. So God had sovereignly determined that this was going to be the way that Isaac's family was going to work. So here's the question. Let me just ask you the same question. If God in his sovereignty has determined a plan and has made it very clear, do you think we as human being can overturn or thwart or frustrate God's plan? Can we somehow manipulate things so that God's plan won't be accomplished? Hey, Dale, come on in. Like your sweatshirt. <laughs> so can we, can, we manip- can we try to manipulate God to try to get him to do what we think we want him to do. I mean, we can try. But ultimately, and this is, where, this is where we're going here with Isaac's faith. Isaac learned something. Early in his life, he tries to frustrate this plan. But later on in his life, he understands it's God's plan. So let's just talk about God's sovereign purposes for a moment. I've got a few scriptures here that, that we can look at about God's sovereign purposes. But Psalm 33, 8-11, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever and the plans of his heart to all generations. That can either give you great comfort, or that can even that can scare you a little bit. Now it should give you comfort because it means what? No matter what the nations or the people are, are Entities try to do, nothing's going to frustrate God's sovereign plan. Okay? His counsel stands forever. Isaiah 14, 27. Or Isaiah. Did I say isaiah I did? Thanks, Jim. Isaiah 14, 27. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? God has purposed something. You know, can we... Stop what God is planning to do in his sovereignty. Um, And then probably the, the most famous one here is Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there's none other. I am God and there's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Okay. What was God's sovereign purpose with Esau and Jacob? The older would serve the younger. That was God's purpose. And he told Rebecca that before they were born. Paul says it happened before they were born. And so from the very beginning, there's going to be some family dysfunctionality here in how this all works. So let's go to Genesis 27, 1 through 4, and let's continue to read how the story happens. Genesis 27, um, 1 through 4. All right. So let's uh, just—I may make some commentary here. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim, so that he could not see, he called Esau his older son and said to him, "My son." And he answered, "Here I am." Let's just stop right there. Why do you think Moses, who wrote Genesis, put that little detail in there that Isaac was old and his eyes were dim? So what? What's he trying to say there? He can't see anything. Okay, is it just that Isaac was like blind, or what's what's really going on here? He's losing his eyesight, but, okay, so he's physically going blind, but really, ultimately, it's kind of a play on words here. He's kind of spiritually blind to what's going on here. He's, he's kind of spiritually blinding, blinded because he's going to try to do something here. So let's look at verse 2. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat. That my soul may bless you before I die. So, what's what is Isaac, what is what is, I keep wanting to say Isaiah, <laughs> Isaac, Isaac, Isaiah. They're all they're all that same name. What does Isaiah want to do? F- F- Isaac, goodness sakes! From the beginning here, <laughs> Isaac. From the very beginning, we see that Isaac, Isaac is going against God's predetermined plan. What does he want to do? He wants to bless. What does he say right there? Said, I'm going to bless you now what had already been announced to, 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 to Isaac before the boys were born? The older is going to serve the younger. So what's Isaac doing right here? He's basically saying, I don't really care what God's plan is. I'm going to bless the older. And so from the very beginning, he's going against what he knew was God's original plan. And we'll see how that works out for him. Now, it's no accident, and I think I alluded to this, it's no accident that his eyesight He's going blind. Not only is his natural eyesight dim, but his spiritual eyesight's going dim as well. He's trying to frustrate God's plans here. He knows better. Now let's continue to see the story unfold. So let's go verses 5 through 25 and read the rest of this dysfunctional family in action. You think you've got a dysfunctional family? This family has you beat. Hands down. This is the best soap opera. this is ever put into a soap opera, this would be a Lifetime movie original. Or whatever they call it. All right, so so number five, or verse five. Now Rebecca was listening. She was eavesdropping when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it. And Rebecca said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. And his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice." And go, bring them to me. So, he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garment of Esau, her older son, which uh, were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and on the smooth parts of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hands of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Great answer, huh? Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near me, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, Who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. So you guys know the story, right? It's the deception. It was all orchestrated by the stage mom. Rebecca, that kind of wanted to get Jacob. Now, Rebecca knew this, right? But did she rely upon God's sovereignty or did she try? She tried to force it. So both of these parents, Rebecca's trying to force things and Isaac's trying to go against God's purposes. So both parents are basically trying to thwart God's purposes and God's timing. And so here's what happens. Basically, God's will gets done because who gets blessed? Jacob albeit through deception and manipulation, which is another interesting thing to think about. Now let's go down to verse 30 and see what happens here. Um, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, Esau his brother came in from his hunting. So it's like almost like tag team. They, they, almost, they almost meet. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game. "'that you may bless me.' "'His father Isaac said to him, "'Who are you?' "'He answered, "'I am your son, "'your firstborn son Esau.' "'This is a key, verse 33, "'that Isaac trembled very violently "'and said, "'Well, who was it then "'that hunted game "'and brought it to me? "'And I ate it all before you came, "'and I have blessed him. "'Yes, and he shall be blessed.' "'As soon as Esau heard "'the words of his father, "'he cried out with an exceedingly "'great and bitter cry "'and said to his father, "'Bless me, even me also, O oh my father.' But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob, that deceiver, heel grabber? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered him and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Okay. The response of Isaac when he finds out that he was fooled, in verse 33, it says that he trembled violently. Now, we really don't know why he trembled. We have to guess. Was he afraid that Esau was going to beat him up? I don't know. This is my speculation. I think he trembled violently because it was at that moment he understood that he tried to overpower the sovereign will of Almighty God and he lost. He was no longer in control. He went against God's very will and realized that God got his way. And that's what always happens in the end, isn't it? Doesn't God always get his way? even when we try to manipulate it, when we try to go against it. And, and, and Isaac here is, is you know, overwhelmed with violent trembling because he realizes that he had tried to bless Esau. And in, in fact, he ended up blessing Jacob, which is really what was supposed to happen, but it was done through this manipulative, really weird family dysfunctional issue. And I think he finally, I think this was like Isaac's moment of being under conviction. Um, and so God doesn't, do things the way we often want him to do things. He does things for himself, for his good pleasure. And he's orchestrating events in your life to make you more like Christ. He's shaping you as the master potter to be what he wants you to be. And so sometimes when we try to thwart God's plans or we try to manipulate or we try to go against his timing, God is the master potter. Now think about a pot for a moment. You guys ever like Pottery, I've never done pottery, but I've watched YouTube videos, okay? There's a thing called centering when you, when you make a pot, like when you do pottery, and it's the hardest part. You've got to get the clay centered on the wheel. If not, it's going to get all lumpy, okay? So it's on the wheel. It's smacked down, and then you start shaping it and squeezing and pinching, okay? And then after you've fashioned the pot, what does it go into? It goes into a kiln. And then it comes out all nice and beautiful. Okay, Now think about your life for a moment. Are there times where God squeezes and pinches and shapes, and maybe the times you even go through a kiln? But what comes out on the other end? You come out what God wants you to be. Now, there's some times where you may fight against the potter's hands, and you may want to fling yourself off the wheel But ultimately, God is shaping you, not because he doesn't like you, but why is God doing all this? He's shaping you because he loves you, and he wants you to be conformed to Christ, and he knows better. Remember the old show, Father Knows Best, in the 50s? Our Father knows best. He knows best how to shape us. And even when we try to go against his plans or against his purposes in his fatherly care, he's always going to bring us back. And I think for this moment in Isaac's life, it was like he was under great conviction that I've gotten myself out of the hands of the potter. And God got him back. Um, Job forty-two, two. At the end of the book of Job, he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now, I don't want to delve into this. I'll just give this to you for food for thought. But even in the midst of sinful actions, God gets his way. Now, I'm not excusing what what rebecca did i'm not excusing what isaac did i'm not excusing what any of this family did because they acted sinfully but even in the midst of their sin who gets the final word god which kind of gives you a little bit of encouragement doesn't it like when you mess up or you or you do something stupid even then you're not so far out of god's plan and he can't use you or can't accomplish his plans he can he, i'm not saying that's an excuse for you to go out and sin but i'm saying it's interesting that through the sin of this family god finally got his will accomplished even in the midst of their sin. Um, so not not an excuse to go out and sin, but God can, can work definitely through that. Um, so with all this sinful behavior and trying to somehow thwart God's purposes or move things along in their own power, the question is, why in the world is Isaac elevated as is this great man of faith? Because back in Hebrews 11.20, all it says about Isaac, he, by faith, invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Um, I think... He came to understand something at the end of his life, in his old age. Remember, these are deathbed confessions of these patriarchs in the book of Hebrews. He tried to overthrow what God had predetermined to take place by blessing Esau. And what Isaac discovers in this final act of faith is that true, authentic faith submits to the sovereign God, whose plans cannot be thwarted. Let me just give you another proverb, 1921. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. I'll let you think about that for a minute. Yes, Brent. I'm thinking of Proverbs 16. Yes. Yeah. 16.1, plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. One. In 9, it says, the heart of man plans a way, but the Lord establishes his Mm steps. Every decision the so when you go to Las Vegas, <laughs> and you throw that roulette wheel. God has predetermined what you No, I'm just joking. I mean, you, I mean that's what it says there. The lot is capped, and every, I mean, the, you know, if you play if you play Monopoly or dice games, it's rigged, and God's got it all figured out. No, anyway, go ahead. <laughs> the uh, hmm? Yeah, by casting. By casting dot? Yeah, that? Yeah, that's not a good way to like vote for elders and deacons, by the way. <laughs> Let's cast lots. Who's the best person? Actually, it's a side note. Like some of the churches that I grew up in, it not I won't be disparaging of them, but they were like typical Southern Baptist churches. And here's how they did things. When there was an opening, they would have a sheet of paper up on the bulletin board and people would go sign up for what committee they wanted to be on. You want to be a deacon? Sign up. And then, you know, just people signed up for what they wanted to do. Um, do you think that's a good way to do church, maybe? <laughs> Some of you are like, I don't know about that. It may have worked back then. I don't know. I was young. I, I just remember people signing up for, for being stuff on a, on a bulletin board. And Interesting. I'd rather have people work in their giftings and their areas of, of giftings. All right, well, let's go to Genesis 28 and um, look at verses 1 through 4. And this is kind of the amazing part um, Isaac calls in Jacob a second time and blesses him and doesn't, this time it's not a deception. Okay, how was, how was um, Jacob blessed the first time? Through a deception, through manipulation. This time at the end of his life, Isaac doesn't do it through manipulation. He, he does it knowingly what he's doing. So he's, he's, he's doing this a second time as a way of saying, okay, God, you got my attention. The older shall serve the younger. We've messed it up the first time. I'm doing it this time under your sovereign, you know, understanding your sovereignty. So let's look at Genesis 28, 1-4. Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother." God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau's mother. What's Isaac giving Jacob here? The Abrahamic covenantal blessing. He's saying, may you be a people, a nation, and may you possess the land. That's the Abrahamic covenant. And so Isaac is doing this, no manipulation, no deception. He's come to the end of his life and says, okay, I tried to fool God once. It didn't work. I'm going to do it God's way now. This is the way it should have been done. I should have sat Jacob down at the very beginning and given him the Abrahamic blessing because it was told to me. But I loved Esau more. I was spiritually blind. My wife's dysfunctional. She loved Jacob. And we had this whole manipulative family thing going on. And so at the end of his life, he, he pretty much understands. Um, and so this time, Isaac will obey his sovereign God and do knowingly what he did unknowingly last time. This is Isaac's way of surrendering to the sovereign will of God and blessing Jacob who should have been blessed in the first place. When we do things in disobedience, this will not frustrate or thwart God's purposes in our lives. God will orchestrate things and events in our lives to truly show us that His purposes will prevail and that He always wins in the end. Think about so think about here, evil circumstances. Would you consider what happened here, not necessarily evil, but would you, would you consider this sinful? What would happen here? It's sinful because it went against God's plan. There was deception, there was manipulation, there was you know, treachery. Okay, think about the most sinful act ever perpetrated in the history of the world. What's the most sinful act? The crucifixion. If we were to say, what is the most gruesome, heinous act of treachery that the world's ever seen, it would be the crucifixion of Jesus as the only Son of God, innocent. Okay? So what we can see in the cross is God uses the most evil of circumstances by sinful men to accomplish great and mighty purposes. We see this beautifully illustrated in the cross. Let me ask you a trick question. Who killed Jesus? Who killed? Okay, we did. (laughs) Who killed, but let me just ask you a question. Who, okay, that's the Sunday school answer. We killed Jesus. But who was there, who was there that actually killed him? Who was, who was humanly responsible in history for killing Jesus? Can we list them on the, can we list them on the board? Who, who, okay, so we say the Pharisees, which um, code word, sometimes it's talked about the Jews, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees. Okay, who else? The Roman, did you guys say the Roman soldiers? Okay, the Roman soldiers or the Gentiles. I heard somebody say Herod. Okay. And who's the main guy? Okay, Satan. Okay. (laughs) Human. Okay, so like the the human agents, the human agents in the death of Jesus were the Pharisees. They had the kangaroo court. You had the Roman soldiers who actually beat Jesus and nailed him to the cross physically. You had Herod who, who you know, was complicit in the whole thing. You had Pilate who washed his hands and three times says, this man's innocent and yet I'm still going to convict him. Okay. now that's, So the question is, who killed Jesus? We could say, well, the Pharisees were responsible. The Roman soldiers were responsible. Herod was responsible. Pilate's responsible. But ultimately, who's responsible for killing Jesus? God. Let's read Acts 2. 30, 23 through 24. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, Pharisees, and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Was the cross an afterthought in God's mind? What does it say there? It was a definite plan. Okay, God accomplished a definite plan. It was God's plan, but who carried it out? Human agents that were doing wicked. Okay, Acts four twenty-seven through, 20, through 28. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So who killed Jesus? Pharisees, Romans, Herod, Pilate. Yes. Who killed Jesus? God. God did. It was God's plan before the foundation of the earth to have Jesus come and die on the cross. So even in the most wicked of acts that these humans are responsible and will be held accountable for, God used somehow in his sovereignty the wicked acts of people to bring about the most, the greatest good ever in the death of jesus on his cross and so the application for us is like pastorally or maybe as you're counseling a friend when something evil happens or something terrible happens or something bad happens you can look at that as purposeless evil and say well it's just purposeless evil what goes around comes around it's karma yin-yang You must have had a bad life, you know, past life. I mean, you can give these platitudes. I don't, you know, or you could say, listen, I don't know why it happened. I may never know why it happened, but God has a purpose behind it, and he can redeem it and bring good out of it. And if you want to question how God does that, just look at the cross. He took the most evil of human actions Think about God for a moment. Let's think about suffering. This is kind of a side note. I didn't mean to go on this, but it just popped in my head. Think about suffering for a moment. Okay, so there's human suffering in the world, is there not? There's sin. There's suffering. There's there's cancer. There's pain. Um, all other world religions have a really inadequate answer to suffering. Okay, let's just talk about um, Islam. What does Islam say about suffering? You better try hard. You better try hard to be in the good graces of Allah so that you don't have to suffer. I mean, there's really no answer for suffering in, in, in Islam. It's just there. Buddhism, they're really big on suffering, but what is their answer to it? Suffering is really an illusion, and your best hope is to live a good enough life so you can be reincarnated to come back and do it a second time better. <laughs> Does that help anybody here? Okay? Hinduism is really similar. Hinduism basically says, well, the reason i 'm suffering is I must have done something really bad to make all these millions of gods unhappy so i better I better appease the gods by doing puja by doing worship by doing worshiping the gods, so i don 't suffer um, New age or whatever would say you know the reason you 're suffering is because um, you know God must be absent or God must not be there or whatever christianity's the only i guess belief system that says Here's the answer to suffering. Our God, who created the world, knows what it's like to suffer. Because He left the glories of heaven and did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped and made Himself nothing, becoming the nature of a servant, becoming obedient to death on the cross. Jesus left the glories of heaven. He suffered everything that we've suffered, hunger, thirst, pain, to the ultimate point of dying in our place on the cross to show that God cares about suffering. So God is not aloof to suffering in Christianity. God enters right into the suffering. God sends Jesus down right into the suffering to suffer on our behalf so that one day we would never have to suffer. And so, yes, we're temporarily suffering right now, but it's, 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 not, um, it's not forever. We can have hope because Christ suffered in our place, and if you trust Jesus for salvation, you know that one day you will not suffer ever again. All your tears will be wiped away. Um, so I don't know why I went on that tangent, but there's a tangent. So, let's get back to Acts. Who killed Jesus? Pilate, Herod, the Gentiles, the Romans, the Jews, and yet it was according to the definite predestined sovereign plan of God. God's purposes cannot be thwarted. Yes, those evil men were held responsible for killing Jesus, but only under the sovereign control of a mighty God who does all things for His glory. And it's interesting, um, what glorifies God the most? The death of His Son. In Isaiah 53.10, it says, It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He's put into grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. Um, And so it was God's plan from the very beginning to have Jesus die on the cross. So what is true authentic faith that we see evidence in the life of Isaac, our first character tonight? It is a faith that submits to a sovereign God by understanding that his plan cannot be thwarted. We cannot stop the invincible power of Almighty God in doing what he is determined to accomplish. All right. Before we move on, are there any questions, comments, or snide remarks on Isaac? <laughs> before we move on to Jacob. All right. Let's go back to Hebrews 11.21. We're going to come back to Genesis 2, so keep your finger in Genesis. But Hebrews 11.21. So as we're trekking through these men, remember these are the writer of Hebrews focuses on their death. <coughs> what they did in their death. Their deathbed confessions, not their great acts of faith. He really doesn't focus on, as far as their, the totality of their life, mainly what happens during their death. So here we go, verse 21. By faith, when dying, okay, in his death, when dying, Jacob blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Now again, out of all the stories to focus on Jacob, why would that be the one about faith? I would think if I were writing Hebrews, of course I'm not. Wouldn't you want to focus on when he wrestled? And got his hip pocket, you know, by faith, Jacob wrestled an angel and got his hip. I mean, you'd think that would be what he focused on, but he does, and he focuses on his death. And what does Jacob, and it's interesting because we'd have to do a whole study on Jacob to see his transformation, but there's something we learned about, about Jacob. So here's Jacob's, here's the thing about faith with Jacob, okay? So we're shifting gears to Jacob. Authentic faith is evidenced by a transformed life that rests in God's sovereign grace. If there's anybody that underwent a transformation in the Old Testament and you can see it, it's Jacob. What's his name? Deceiver. And his name's changed to Israel. And you see this pattern of how through his life he becomes transformed by God's grace to where at the end of his life he rests in God's grace. So, of all the stories to pick, and I think I've already talked about this, to illustrate the faith of Jacob, why focus on the blessing of Jacob's sons? I mean, Joseph's sons. This does not seem significant. Notice that the text says in verse 21, when dying, Jacob blessed each of the sons of Joseph. This can literally be read, if you want to go back to the original Greek, in the face of death or at death's door. What What do we know about Jacob and his life? He was really, early in his life, a man seduced by power, popularity, and prosperity. But by the end of his life, he rested in God's sovereign grace. Now, we've we've looked a little bit about Jacob and Esau. What do we know about him from Genesis 25? He's born holding Esau's heel. The name Jacob means heel grabber. What this really means is that Jacob would be, from his very birth, a cheater, a deceiver, and the ultimate con man. And does he live up to his name? I mean, every story almost of Jacob, he's deceiving somebody. He's deceiving his brother. He's deceiving his dad. He's deceiving his uncle Laban. Um, He's he's a con man. He's a deceiver. He's tricking everybody left and right. It's interesting, too. When you go back and you read Genesis, if you read it carefully, the, the life of Jacob, almost every time he talks about God, he very rarely says, my God. When he's talking to his dad, and when he's talking to others, he'll say things like, Your God. He never says, My God, up to a certain point. Now, it changes. There's a point where that changes. But if you trace his speech, he, he's a deceiver, he's a shyster, he's a con man. Your God does these things. But it's never, Jacob never has a, that personal, This is my God, Yahweh God. He, he, he doesn't have that transformation yet. Until that one night. What happens? Changes in one fateful night when he wrestles with this mysterious stranger. In Genesis 35, Jacob wrestles all night with the angel of the Lord and I believe it's there that Jacob is transformed. He meets the living God in a very unique way. And what happens to Jacob? What happens to his hip? He gets wrenched out of its socket and he ends up walking with a limp. And, so God, and God changes his name to Israel. And so I've got an interesting quote by Oswald Chambers from My Utmost for His Highest. He says, "Before God can use a man greatly, He must wound him deeply." <laughs> I don't know if I like that. <laughs> Think about that for a moment. Is that? I mean, I don't know if that's always true. I'm not saying that's absolutely always true. I'm not saying that God has to always wound you before He can use you. But I'm saying this: if you've never been through setbacks, if you've never been through heartache, if you've never been through struggle, um, can you relate to other people? I mean, I think the, the ones God uses are the weak, the weary, the battered, the tested, the bruised. Because if not, we would just be doing things in our own power, right? Well, we need God. I've got it all together. I don't have any problems. I'm Donald Trump. I mean, I'm sorry. I should have said that. <laughs> I don't have any problems. Sorry, that just kind of came out. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, but it shows us something about... This is an Old Testament, so we can't take it like... We can't, make, we can't build a didactic theology of a narrative. You understand what I'm saying? But I will say it teaches a principle. Even when you get saved, you still struggle with sin. <laughs> You're never perfect. Um, and so sometimes we expect people... When people are converted and saved, we expect them to what? Automatically. Now, there are some dramatic conversions where people automatically change. But for most of us, what do we do? We still kind of struggle with sin Um, now hopefully we're we're moving to repentance and moving out of that but sometimes baby Christians do baby Christian things what do baby what do babies do they cry vomit and poop you have to take care of them what do baby Christians do You, you said it I didn't say it sometimes they spiritually do those things and we've got to come alongside them and love them and encourage them because they're acting like babies okay um, and we've looked at that in Hebrews. Remember, you, by now you should be on solid food, but you're on milk. And he talks about, so there's stages in our growth where we, you know, baby Christians and, and mature Christians and things like that. So I think Jacob was a, at this point, was a baby Christian, if that if you could say that about him. Um, so let's read, let's go back to Genesis 48. So Genesis 48, 10 through 20. Um, Jacob was changed. God's sovereign grace had broken through and irresistibly overcome all of Jacob's sin. The amazing thing about Genesis is not that Esau was the one not chosen, but that Jacob was chosen. Uh, There was nothing in Jacob that moved God to show him sovereign grace. Yeah, you you look at the story and you're like, well, I don't think it's fair that God chose Jacob over Esau. But when you actually look at the story, who was worse? Jacob was probably worse than Esau. So it's not like you wonder why God chose either one of them, because both of them were pretty bad. All right, so uh, Genesis 48: 10 through21. This is where Jacob blesses Ephraim and Manasseh, which are the two children of Joseph. You remember, Joseph is not listed as one of the 12 tribes of Israel, but his two sons are Ephraim and Manasseh. And again, what did I tell you earlier about Jacob and Esau? Who's usually blessed? The firstborn is usually the one that's blessed. And all throughout the Bible, Old Testament, God's going to break that pattern. He's going to always like, go with the secondborn. And so we see it happening here. All right? So let's look at uh, Genesis 48, 10 through 21. Um, now, the eyes of Israel, and that's talking about Jacob. The eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. Sound familiar? So Joseph brought them, that's Manasseh and Ephraim, near him and kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. You remember the whole story? You know, I mean, he was, left for dead as a kid, 17-year-old, didn't think he'd ever see his father again. They're reunited after all these years. He's the prime minister of Egypt. He provides for his family. There's the, there's the re, you know, reconciliation, reunion. And so Jacob's thinking, I didn't think I'd ever see you, Joseph, and even, even your children. This is an amazing thing. That's basically what he's saying there. Verse 12, Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, Toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh and his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands for Manasseh was the firstborn, and he blessed Joseph and said, "The God before whom my father's Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who's been my shepherd." All my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand and moved it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall become a people, and he shall be also great. But nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Okay? Do you guys see the visual imagery here? It was customary for the father or the grandfather to bless the oldest son. And yet God goes against the cultural conventions of the day and does things in his own way. Actually, Joseph tries to help his aging father along by putting the boys in the right spot. So Manasseh was in the position to receive the primary blessing and Ephraim was on the left. But in a moment, in this crisscrossing of hands, Jacob does God's will. Now, what would have Jacob remembered? as this old man. When I was a little boy, or not a little boy, I was a young man. When I used to be Jacob, notice how all throughout this he's referred to as who? Israel, Israel. My old life, when I was Jacob, when I was deceiver boy, when I was con man, we tried to do this to my father Isaac. And we tried to go against God's sovereign purposes. I'm not going to do that. In my old age, I'm going to do God's will this time. I'm no longer shyster. I'm no longer manipulator. I'm going to do it God's way. Now, we don't know how or when God told him to do this. He, we just know he, he's doing what God, you know, by switching the boys. That was what needed to happen. So Jacob's faith rested in the conviction that God's purposes were invincible and his promises were being worked out under God's providence because he'd been transformed by sovereign grace himself he knew that it was foolish to try to thwart God's purposes. He again rested in God's sovereignty. Now, I know. I think it's interesting. Go back and look at verse 15. Um, I like what Jacob says here in verse 15. What does he say? The God who, before my fathers, Abraham and Isaac walk, the God who's been my, what does it say there? My shepherd all my life long to this day. God's been my shepherd all my life. Now, did Jacob always live as if God was his shepherd all his life? But at the end of his life, he realizes, even when I was that conniving young man, trying to go against God's purposes, God was my shepherd and he was moving me and he was shaping me to the point where I am today. All all the days of my life to this day, this shepherd has shepherded me by his his grace. Um, It's interesting when you look at the shepherd motif in the Bible. In the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, um, what's a shepherd do? What does a shepherd do? Take care of sheep. Takes care of the sheep. Is a shepherd a cattle man? Those of you that have cattle. What do you do with cattle? Hurt you herd them. You drive them. Mm-hmm. You have to get behind them and do what? <clears throat> push them. Push the okay. You cannot do that to sheep, can you? What do you have to do with sheep? You have to stand out in front of them, and you have to call to them, and you have to Let them follow you, okay? God is a shepherd. God is out in front of us calling us to himself and gently, you know, being with us. We, as pastors, are called shepherds. What's my job? How would you like for me to pastor you guys? As a cattleman or as a shepherd? I could be like behind you guys. All right, let's go, guys. Get to where you need to go. There's green pasture over there. Why aren't you over there eating it and drinking it? Come on now, flock. You wouldn't like that, would you? Or I could be, okay, I'm a little further out than you guys, not quite arrived yet, but we're all getting there together. If somebody falls, we'll get them up. We're going to get there together. Let's all get to the green pasture. We're going to bind your wounds. We're going to shepherd you. That, that's the image of, of a shepherd. And so Jacob says, God himself has been my shepherd. And this is even before the 23rd Psalm. What, is, what does David say? The Lord is my shepherd. I, well, Jacob's the first to say that. The Lord is my shepherd to all this day to the end of my life. And so, basically, he acknowledged that God had been a shepherd his entire life. Even back when he was a deceitful con man and a manipulator, God was working on his sovereign purposes in Jacob's life to bring him to the breaking point of transformation. So let me ask you the question. Has, there, has God ever brought you to the breaking point of transformation? When you look back over your life, have you seen God's shepherdly hand shepherding you, and guiding you, and leading you? So He blesses the two boys, and does it in reverse order. And then, what does Jacob, as this old man, do? The writer of Hebrews, back in verse twenty-one, in Hebrews eleven twenty-one, says that he bows in worship over the head of his staff. So he kind of. There's, there's kind of a textual variant there. Some, some translations say it's the head of his staff. Some say it's the head of his bed. Um, I take it more the staff because I think the staff is a symbol. What's a staff a symbol of? Being a pilgrim. What did we talk about a few years ago? A few years ago. A few weeks ago with Abraham. A few years ago, too. A few weeks ago with Abraham. These guys were sojourners. They never put down roots. They are always. They never settled in the land. They were strangers in a strange land. I think that, that staff is a symbol of I'm moving around. And so Jacob bends over his staff, and um, I think it's this whole idea that he's worshiping God, but here's what he does. He worships the sovereign God who transformed him. He rests in the promise that one day he would no longer be a sojourner, but a permanent resident in a better country heaven, the city whose architect and builder is God. He bows in worship as one who's lived his life by faith and things not yet seen. Go back to Hebrews for a moment. Hebrews 11. What does it say about these guys? I mean, we read it a few weeks ago, just earlier up in the chapter. um, In Hebrews 11, verses, um, we're talking about Abraham. Oh, yeah, here it is. Verse 13. Hebrews 11. These all died. That's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And so God has prepared them a city. And so I think when Jacob... So here's the image I have of Jacob. At the end of his life, he's bowing on his staff, worshiping God because he's resting in the fact that God has been my shepherd God has transformed me, and I can die with the peace of knowing that he's prepared for me a better city. And I'm going to die knowing that God has shepherded me my entire life. So he's resting in grace. What's, how did Jacob try to do things in the early part of his life? It was always by works, by deceit, by manipulation. I mean, his whole life was, how can I manipulate things to get things done? How does he end his life? I'm going to bow and rest in God's grace. So the beginning of his life is, my life is a life of works and deception and manipulation. In other words, you can say, Jacob lived in the flesh. But after God transformed him as his shepherd and brought him to this end of his life, how does he end his life? He ends his life by resting in God's grace. Resting. Not manipulating, not works of the flesh, but resting or trusting in God's grace. And really that's what Paul says in Romans 4, 4-5, through doesn't he? Paul says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. And to the one who does not work but trusts, him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That was the end of Jacob's life. I'm not going to work. I'm not going to deceive. I'm not going to manipulate. I'm going to trust in the one who justifies. I'm going to rest in God's grace. And so we look at Isaac's life. Isaac trusted in God's sovereign purposes. Jacob trusted in God's sovereign purposes. Now let's look at Joseph. And Like I said earlier, think of all the stories you could have focused in on Joseph. What were the stories of Joseph? I mean, the coat of many colors, being thrown into the pit, Potiphar's wife and escaping the sexual temptation, Uh, the dreams that he had, uh, being elevated to the prime minister of Egypt, all these things. But what does the writer here say in verse 22? It's almost like an incidental statement. By faith, Joseph, and again, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. Okay. That's an interesting thing to say. Out of all the things to say about Joseph, what was... And so think about it. What if I said from the very beginning, what was on these guys' minds at their deathbed experiences? Because it was, what the writer here focuses on is what they're doing at their deathbed. What is on their heart and mind when they're about to die? For Joseph, it's the Exodus. Interesting. Did he know about the Exodus? And bones. Okay. So let's explore what this means. So here's Joseph's definition of faith. We're looking at Joseph. True, authentic faith does not compromise in the face of the temptations for power, prosperity, and popularity. And you may think about, what does this have to do with Joseph? There are so many stories that could exemplify Joseph's faith. Amazing faith. You have his many years of being in prison unjustly. You have his fleeing sexual temptation with Potiphar's wife. You have the major act of forgiving his brothers for their treachery, into selling him into slavery. But yet, this event here in Hebrews is evidenced by two events in his life. First of all, he made mention of the Exodus. Now, let's just look in your Bible. What book comes first, Genesis or Exodus? Genesis. Genesis. Does Joseph show up in the book of Exodus? No, he dies at the end of Genesis. So the question then is, hmm, how in the world did Joseph know about the Exodus? Was he some wonderful prophet who received it in a trance or a dream? Now, we know he was a dreamer, but the answer is more simple. He heard about it from his grandfather, great-grandfather, Abraham. Go back to Genesis 15. The Exodus was prophesied in Genesis 15. Now, it's not explicitly stated there, But as we read this, you guys will say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Remember when um, Abraham's in a trance, God's cutting a covenant with the smoking pot. Remember all that? But listen to what God promises him in Genesis 15, verses 13 through 16. What does he say to, to Abraham as a prophecy? He says this, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, And will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Does that sound like the Exodus to you? They're going to be slaves. They're going to be there for 400 years, and they're going to come out with great possessions. That's the Exodus. Now, I don't know if Joseph knew it was going to be in Egypt, but it says he made mention of the Exodus. This is a prediction about that. Now go to the end of of Genesis when when we see Joseph's statements. Genesis 50, the last chapter in Genesis. So we have the prophecy given to Abraham and you would assume that Abraham, I mean the Bible doesn't tell us, but you'd assume that Abraham probably shared this with his family. I mean it was probably a big deal to say, hey, God gave me a prophecy that, you know, you're going to be sojourners in land for 400 years. don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but I got this prophecy That's how Genesis ends. Here we have mention of the second issue. Joseph cave commands about his bones. Where does Joseph want to be buried, if you will? The The promised land. Where had Joseph lived his entire life? From age 17 to the end of his life, he was in Egypt. All he knew was Egypt. And as a matter of fact, they changed his name. They got him a wife. They changed his clothing. He was the prime minister. He changed his language. For all intents and purposes, Joseph was pretty much Egyptian. But not really. What was his true identity? He was a Hebrew. And he knew that as great as the riches of Egypt were, my true homeland is the promised land. So the big question is what's the big deal about jo- about Joseph, whoops. What's the big deal about Joseph talking about the Exodus or wanting his bones buried in the promise? And it sounds very strange, somewhat sentimental. We need to remember something very important about Joseph. And I kind of mentioned this. For 80 years he lived in Egypt and was very wealthy, a very wealthy popular leader. He had everything this world has to offer at his disposal. He was not lacking in power. He was the number two guy. He was not lacking in prosperity. He was very rich. He was not lacking in popularity. Everyone loved Joseph. But did this concern Joseph? What's he most concerned about at the moment of his death? The Exodus, the promised land. He wants to be part of the Exodus. He doesn't want to live for Egypt, but for God's glory and the fulfillment of that ultimate purpose. Think about all the things that, that, that you look at about Joseph's lives. He could have been very bitter, couldn't he have been? He was forced into slavery by my brothers. He could have given into temptation with um, Potiphar's wife. He fled that. As the number two guy in Egypt, he could have had everything at his disposal. I mean, he could have had, I mean, pagan gods, sex, money, drugs, rock and roll, whatever you want to say. He he had it all. But think about this. I just want you to think about this for a moment. Think about Egyptian pharaohs, how they were buried. You've seen the History Channel or maybe the King Tut exhibit. What was the big thing about the the burial of Egyptian kings and pharaohs? They were buried as powerful leaders in Egypt. You were buried with gold gold and expensive jewels, and your death was a monument to your prosperity, your power, and your popularity. Now think about this. Joseph had all of this at his disposal. He could have demanded to be buried like a prince and all the wealth and opulence of an Egyptian pharaoh, but that is not on his heart. He just wants his bones to be buried in the promised land. They embalmed him and put him in a coffin, but it doesn't say there that they embalmed him as a mummy and a pharaoh and he had all the things he just simply wanted he did not want to be memorialized in Egypt as this great man he wanted his bones to be in the promised land because that's where his true home was so Joseph isn't thinking about himself He's thinking about the legacy he can leave after he he dies to encourage and motivate and edify those future generations. He's not caught up in the web of power, prosperity, popularity, but he identifies himself with the people of God and wants to be an inspiration and an encouragement to them as they go into the land. And what do we find happens to Joseph's bones? Exodus 13.19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from, or bones with you from here. Okay, Joshua 24.32, as for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up out from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem. In the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the sons of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money, it became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. Where was Joseph finally buried? In his dad's graveyard. I mean, basically in the plot of land that his dad, Jacob, had purchased back in the promised land, which is very, very interesting. So let's look at these three guys that we've looked at tonight. Let's just kind of summarize their faith. From Isaac, we see that authentic faith submits to God by understanding that his sovereign plan cannot be thwarted. For Jacob, we see that authentic faith is evidenced by a transformed life that rests in God's sovereign grace. And from Joseph, we see that authentic faith does not compromise in the face of temptations of power, prosperity, and popularity. So let me just ask you some personal questions. Is your faith a faith that evidences a transformed life? Is yours a faith that doesn't compromise? Is yours a faith that's been a recipient of God's sovereign grace? How is your faith? And let's just tie this back to Jesus. You need more than a righteous man like Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph to be your example. You need one greater than these. Who's the ultimate one that was sacrificed on Mount Moriah? Obviously, it's a picture of Jesus. You need the true Israel. Jacob, you need the better Joseph, Jesus. Let's make some comparisons. Have you guys looked at the comparisons between Joseph and Jesus? Have you ever seen those comparisons before? Think about it. Like Joseph, who was forced out of his father's house at the treachery of his wicked brothers, Jesus voluntarily left his father's house to come to earth to save those who committed treachery against him. Like Joseph who suffered in Egypt because of his faithfulness to God, Jesus, because he was the sinless, spotless, and faithful Lamb of God, suffered on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And like Joseph, who through suffering and faithfulness was exalted to a throne and was the leader of the people, Jesus too went through suffering on the cross and bore God's wrath. And after his death, three days later, God exalted him to the highest place, the resurrection and the ascension.